Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I will typically talk to my clients about the fact that we can live an or life or include the power of and. And that looks like if we are using safety as our guiding value, we tend to get into this rigid, we have to be safe or we can't do this. We're safe or we have risk and we go to this place we want to go that's just not safe. Let's shift that mindset and look at the power of and. How can we be safe and still go to that place we want to go? How can we be safe and still go to the family party? Because that's also a value, being connected to our family and our friends and having enjoyment in life, that is a value. So how can we do those two things together? That was Tamara Hubbard on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. Our sponsor today is Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. I love my Uplift standing desk. It's solid and sturdy and allows me to easily transition from sitting to standing while I work with just the push of a button. The ability to switch from sitting to standing throughout the day has been a complete game changer for me. I feel so much better than when I sit all day, and it helps me stay alert when I get tired. In addition to standing desks, Uplift offers ergonomic office seating, storage systems, even walking treadmills for your desk. Everything you need to up your office game. You can get free shipping with no hassles, free 30-day returns and return shipping, and a 15-year warranty. Remember, by supporting our sponsors, you are supporting the podcast. Visit upliftdesk.com slash POTC for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com slash POTC to get 5% off your entire order. We all know there are trade-offs in life, like having to drive a little further to save on gas or groceries. But when it comes to your health, you shouldn't have to trade off. So don't go back to that one doctor who's always late and rushes through your appointment just because they're close by or they take your slightly sketchy insurance. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. You can search by location, availability, insurance, literally no trade-offs here because with ZocDoc, you've got more options than you know. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. My kid's pediatrician is retiring this summer, so you can bet I will be using ZocDoc to find someone new who we all love and trust. So go to ZocDoc.com POTC and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot POTC. ZocDoc.com slash POTC. Psychologists Off the Clock is happy to be partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. With Praxis, you can really transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based training. And they're really the premier provider in continuing education for clinical professionals. Praxis has both on-demand courses as well as live online courses. They have beginner offerings like Act 1 from Matt Boone or more advanced offerings like Act Immersion with Steve Hayes. 
Some of their live online courses include classes in dialectical behavior therapy, superhero therapy, and act with parents. You can get a coupon code for Praxis Continuing Education on our website, offtheclockpsych.com, for some of their live offerings. And we can really attest to the quality of Praxis we've both participated in in ourselves and have seen its benefits in our clinical work. So visit our offers page at offtheclockpsych.com. everybody, it's Jill here, and I'm here with Debbie to introduce an episode with Tamara Hubbard on living with food allergies. Um, So the reason that I really wanted to do this episode is a few years back, I was contacted by a pediatric allergy doc who said she had been seeing so much anxiety in kids and families in her allergy clinic, and I run an anxiety clinic. And so she wanted to kind of partner with me to try to help these families. And I knew nothing about allergies. The only thing I knew really was about my nephew, Elliot, who was allergic to pretty much all of the, almost all of the top eight, now top nine, which Tamara talks about allergens and how they had coped with it. And so I did a lot of self-study and I even did a talk at the food allergy and research education conference and talk about feeling like an imposter But I was still seen as like kind of the only quote unquote expert in the area, even though I was self-taught and knew very little. And I worked with an allergy family, um, a few allergy families, actually. And what I realized is what a big difference there can be in the way people respond to this diagnosis. And I thought, you know, there's probably a lot of clinicians who are encountering this and don't have a lot of information. There are lots of people, you know, everybody knows someone who deals with allergies on top of people who have their own allergies. So I just thought, why not use the podcast to get some information and education out there to our listeners? So Debbie, I'm curious what you thought about the episode. Well, I found that really helpful because I've definitely known people with various food allergies. You know, I've, I've known people who will go to the hospital if they have a nut that they accidentally eat. And then also more probably what Tamara would describe as more of a food intolerance. And to me, since I don't have a personal experience with food allergies, it has been very mysterious to me. Like I don't really get it. And just, I think, I mean, Tamara is great. I loved listening to her. I think what was most helpful to me though, was just getting a little bit of really food allergy 101, but then also hearing about the psychological part of that and what kinds of things people are grappling with and going through, I think it helped me have more understanding and compassion for that. And so I think it'll be just really helpful moving forward, both in my clinical practice, but then also just in my life to have a much better understanding of it. Yeah. And that compassion piece is so important. You know, if we have some listeners who have felt really annoyed that their kids have to have a peanut free classroom, you know, my hope is that maybe at the end of this episode, they'll change their attitude about that. You know, it's really hard to live with food allergies. And when I think about my little nephew, Elliot, you know, he's had allergies since he came out of the womb. And this has been a normal part of his life for his whole life. Not that that makes it any easier. But then I also think about people you know, I have a really close girlfriend who never had allergies until just a few years ago. And now she has lots of food allergies. And what a change that is, you know, you go from being able to eat everything under the sun without thinking about it to all of a sudden having to rearrange your life. And when you think about how much of our social existence revolves around food, you know, it can really be a change. And and I imagine even a, a loss in some ways. Yeah, I was thinking about that loss piece of it when I was listening, because I do think that sometimes because of an allergy, people have to give something up that is, you know, it's just hard. And it's it's maybe not the world's most major loss to not be able to eat a peanut butter sandwich again or something like that. But at the same time, there can be a little bit of that, that I have to change something, I have to live without something. And I have an example. So I don't have a food allergy, but I do have a skin allergy. A dermatologist diagnosed me because I kept getting like breakouts around my mouth and chin. And apparently a lot of women my age get this and it's actually caused by like an allergic reaction. I'm having to something in skincare products. So she put me on a very strict skincare regimen, which is super boring. And I can, I have to use this very mild cleanser and moisturizer and I can never try face makeup that isn't 
a very specific kind or else I'll break out. And the truth is I do break out every single time, but it's kind of a bummer. And I am not equating it to a food allergy. I think it's a different thing, but I also feel like, oh, I would really like to be able to do that. And it is a loss a little bit, like again, a small loss, but still I get that, that I think when, especially if it's a food you've enjoyed eating or one that you see other people enjoying and you can't have that, there's some, there can be some sadness that shows up around that. Absolutely. And and I think even like a loss of a sense of safety, you know, whether it's an anaphylactic reaction or, you know, vomiting or a skin reaction, there are so many different reactions, but you don't want to have a reaction, whether it's a more mild or a more life-threatening or severe reaction, you want to live your life in a way that that's not going to happen. And so I think that loss of just that sense of safety, we're like, oh, I don't even have to think about this. And now I really have to be more vigilant, you know, is a, it can be, can be a challenge too. Loss of innocence almost, if you will, right? Like you'll miss the days when you didn't have to think twice about it. Exactly. So I hope that you find this episode educational and informative. Enjoy. Excited about today's topic. This is something that we've never talked about on the podcast before. And what we're going to talk about today is the intersection of allergies and psychology. So, how allergies can impact a person's social, emotional, psychological functioning, and then how we can use psychology to best cope with allergies and their impact. And so, I have the amazing Tamara Hubbard here who's going to talk to us about this. Tamara is a family therapy trained, licensed clinical professional in private practice, providing evidence-based therapeutic support for women, mothers, and those managing food allergies and allergic diseases. The creator of the internationally recognized Food Allergy Counselor Directory and resource website and the Exploring Food Allergy Families podcast, Tamara has been named one of Spoken's top 100 women in food allergies. She has been interviewed for articles focused on therapy or food allergies for Forbes, NPR, Business Insider, Romper, Real Simple Magazine, Science News for Students, Nature, Undark, and the American Counseling Association's online magazine, Counseling Today. Additionally, she's authored articles that have been featured in Allergic Living Magazine, Coping with Asthma and Allergies Magazine, and Scary Mommy. Tamara is an Allied Health member of the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology and the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. She's a founding community advisory board member for the Center for Allergy and Asthma Research. Tamara is currently working on her first book, which offers therapeutic guidance and strategies for managing the social and emotional aspects of life with food allergies. Tamara, welcome. I'm so happy to have you here on Psychologists Off the Clock. Thank you for having me. I am a longtime listener, so I'm excited to be invited. Yes. I, well, I think that this is such an incredibly important topic. And one of the reasons that it really spoke to me, you know, why, why I really wanted to, to feature you on the podcast is I had an allergy and asthma doc here in San Diego reach out to me knowing that I was a, an anxiety expert. I do clinical work in anxiety. And she reached out to me saying, our families are struggling. Like they are suffering from so much anxiety. She's pediatric. And so not only are the kids who have the allergies experiencing a lot of anxiety, but the parents of these kids were having a lot of anxiety. And she was reaching out to me as somebody who could maybe help. And truthfully, I felt so far out of my depth. And and so I I started to research and learn and, and do the best that I could. But when I came across you on social media, it was like, oh my God, there are actually mental health professionals who specialize <laughs> in this area. So I thought this could just be a really incredibly helpful conversation for our listeners who either have allergies or have, you know, people they love who struggle with allergies. Yeah, well, you know, I'm so glad that you brought this topic up as something that you'd like to focus on for your show, because if we look at the stats, let's just focus on the US. One in 10 adults has a food allergy and one in 13 kids has a food allergy. So if we think about that, pretty much, I would say, I would guess, everybody knows somebody who has a food allergy or has someone in their family with a food allergy, right? We kind of think of it like substance abuse, like that those are usually everybody knows somebody who might be managing a a substance abuse disorder. Food allergies are similar. Those numbers are staggering and they're going up. 
So I think it's important, like you said, that whether it's the person or the family managing the allergy or those who know people managing allergies, to just gain a better understanding of what food allergies are and aren't, how to help other people, and how, if you're the person managing it, to balance that fear and quality of life. Yeah. Well, so why don't we start with what food allergies are and aren't? Because I realize, you know, we all probably have some basic sense of what we think a food allergy is. Yeah. But why don't we start with like correctly identifying it or defining it? I think that's great because you are right. And I'll give you a stat before I give you a definition. There was uh, research into adult onset food allergies or adults managing food allergies, whether they were adult onset or child onset. And to give you kind of the example of, you know, how people maybe misunderstand food allergies, 11%, almost 11% of adults thought they had a food allergy in this study. And so therefore they avoided the food that they thought they were allergic to. And what turned out is that only about 5% had a physician diagnosed food allergy. So that impacts life right there. If somebody thinks they have a food allergy, they're going to avoid that food. And actually only, you know, half of the, that amount of people had an actual food allergy that will require them to avoid the allergen. So wow. if we step back and we look at the definition of what this diagnosis is, is food allergies are an immune based, an immune systemic response to food. So when you eat a food allergen that you're allergic to, your body is going to trigger a systemic reaction. And that could be in any of the systems. It can be respiratory. It can be in the, the digestive system. It can be the skin, the, you know, the derm system. And every time you eat that allergen, it is going to trigger those responses every single time. And many of those could be life-threatening depending on a variety of, of, of factors. An intolerance, on the other hand, is more of a digestive response, so it's not an immune-based response. And it typically will be accompanied by non-life-threatening reactions, such as upset stomach, maybe some headaches. And the other piece is that there might be times when you eat that food that those symptoms don't show up. So it's not a consistent thing. Whereas with a food allergy, if you are truly allergic to a food, and and, and we call that an IgE-mediated food allergy because it has to do, that's a science piece. I don't get too involved in the science piece, but <laughs> it means that it's, it's, you know, immunological in response. It's always going to trigger those symptoms every time you eat it. Mm -hmm. And so how can people find out? Cause it's my understanding, and this may be a misunderstanding that mm -hmm. even having, you know, there's the scratch skin tests that people have, then there's the blood tests. And it's almost feels like there's some controversy around which of these is better or more yeah. accurate? Or some people will talk about being tested for food allergies, but somehow they still didn't get diagnosed with celiac for many years. So, so how, like, if somebody knows that every time they eat wheat, they get bloated and their joints hurt, mm -hmm. you know, what's the best route to try to figure out what's going on so that people aren't avoiding foods unnecessarily, but also are you know, taking the best care of their bodies as they possibly can. So I'll start off by saying what not to do. Do not order kits online that say, hey, we can figure out, you know, what is your food allergy or your food intolerance? Because, and again, this is getting into the science piece, and I'll say I'm not a doctor, but this is what I've learned from reputable allergists, is that we may be sensitized to a food, but that doesn't mean it's an allergy and that doesn't mean we have to avoid it. So you really want to go to a board certified allergist in order to have them run these tests that you shared. But to your point, allergy is a bit of an art and a science put together. And I think that's where, where you were getting at with this idea that, you know, there's the skin test, there's the RASP test, which is the scratch test on our skin. And then there's the gold standard test of eating it. So allergists have to take all of that information and some of it's contradictory to one another. It may be positive on a skin test and negative on a blood test. They may have you do a supervised oral food challenge where they actually have you eat that allergen and see what happens. And at this point in science, the oral food challenge is what they call the gold standard for testing. So if you can eat that and not have any kind of a reaction, then you don't have an, a food allergy to that allergen. 
And again, you, you mentioned, you know, if you're sitting there and you're like, okay, I'm eating that and I feel bloated and I have joint joints hurting immediately. My thought is that's probably going to be more of one of those intolerances versus an allergy. So I would have a person go to an allergist and get that teased out. Is this an intolerance? Is this a food allergy? To what degree do I have to avoid the food? To what degree is eating that food going to impact impact my health? And is it life threatening allergy? In which case that triggers, you know, epinephrine auto injectors and all sorts of emergency action plans. Right. So is it fair to say that if you have an allergy, the response would be pretty immediate? So typically, if you have an allergy to a food and you eat that food or you ingest that food in some way, the response is typically within a couple of hours. Okay. And sometimes it's immediate. It can be as quickly as in a, within a few minutes. It can take a few hours. Again, there's a lot of variables that go into it. How much did you eat? How much allergic load is your body already handling? Maybe you have environmental allergies and it's the time of the year where you're most allergic. And so now you introduce the allergen. Is your body going to react quickly or is it going to react a little bit? But typically, yeah, it's it's going to be pretty immediate. Whereas, you know, somebody who maybe has an intolerance may not feel it for half a day, a day later, for the rest of the week. This is going to be more of an immediate response. And it's going to be one that if not cared for will continue to progress usually and and include other systems in the body. So if it starts off with a rash, some hives, and it's not treated, and you are truly allergic, it may then go to the respiratory system. And now you may have breathing issues, right? Or the digestive system, and you may have vomiting or cramping or, you know, upset stomach. So I imagine, you know, exactly what you're saying is one of the reasons folks have a lot of anxiety around allergies is because even if an allergy starts out as quote unquote, just vomiting or skin at any point, it could become anaphylactic. It may not, but it, it could. And, you know, that's pretty scary, both as an allergy sufferer or as a parent of someone with an allergy, that uncertainty there. There's a lot of uncertainty or what feels like uncertainty when it comes to living a life with a food allergy. And I think because it is a, you know, a pretty intense diagnosis, if we, as soon as we put life threatening or potentially life threatening into that sentence, that's going to induce fear, anxiety, and panic. Understandably so. So if it's a parent who's getting this diagnosis for their young child, or maybe it's an adult with an adult onset allergy, who's hearing, hey, you have to change your entire lifestyle to avoid X, Y, and Z allergen because it could be life-threatening, that is going to induce that fear. And so now things feel uncertain. And what do we want for uncertainty? We want predictability and certainty. So it is. It's it's when you get that diagnosis, no matter where in your life you are, it is life-changing. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about this line between, you know, obviously a certain level of anxiety and fear is adaptive and healthy. And and I know, correct me if this is wrong, but it's my understanding that teenagers can be at the most risk because they tend to be, you know, less anxious and kind of have that um, sense of what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Invincibility. (laughs) Right. And, and that like, because they tend to be less worrying and less anxious about their allergies, it is the most dangerous time. Do I have that right? Yeah. So, so research has shown that, um, you know, because of a a variety of of variabilities during those teen uh, adolescent years, that does tend to be a higher risk time. I think you hit the nail on the head at that age, right? You've got the developmental stuff going on. They want to fit in, they want to belong, they want to figure out who they are you know, be with their friends and not cause a scene either by a reaction or having to ask questions at a restaurant, right? So maybe they don't want to carry their auto injector because they don't want to, you know, if they're a boy, where do they put it? And I don't want to have it in my purse and I don't want to be different. So those pieces added on to the fact that, you know, one of the key things that you have to do when you have an allergy is to carry your auto injector and your emergency action plan should a reaction happen. If, if teens are unwilling to do those things and just want to fit in, you've got all of these potential risks that kind of come together in a perfect storm situation should the teen have an allergic reaction 
They don't have their auto injector on them. You know, their friends, they haven't talked to their friends. They aren't aware that, hey, I have this allergy. So yeah, it does potentially become riskier because of that time in in the development for, for kids. But again, with allergies, no matter what age you are, and, and so obviously for parents, this is going to be put more on them when the kids are younger, whereas as the child gets older and becomes an adult, that's going to become their responsibility, is teaching them the basic skills to keep themselves safe and how to advocate for their own self-needs, to speak up when they need to, and to learn how to identify friends and support systems that are going to be there in case of a reaction. Yeah. So it's a lot to, to, it's manageable, but it's a lot to manage. And so how do you know, like the line between an adaptive amount of concern, like I need to be vigilant about this because it is something that could be life-threatening. And so having like a healthy amount of anxiety is important, or at least, you know, arousal awareness, maybe it's not anxiety, but, you know, having this like healthy level of vigilance to take care of myself, to keep myself safe or to keep my child safe. Where, how do you know, like, where is the line between that and anxiety that is maybe above what is warranted for the situation? So I would probably, you know, to to put it simply, I would say it's very similar to what we would say working with anybody, right? It crosses that line from adaptive and helpful to unhelpful when the anxiety becomes something that impacts your daily life, keeps you from being able to do things that are important to you to function on a daily basis, becomes something that, you know, is showing physical sensations of anxiety all the time that you're now becoming really hypervigilant about, potentially thinking you're having a reaction all the time when you're not, right? Because there's that piece of anxiety that is physical, And Mm -hmm. so if we think about allergic reactions tend to be physical, obviously, and we feel different. So there's that overlap there as well. So it's really similar to what we would say with anybody where that anxiety stays adaptive versus unhelpful. But I also like to help people normalize the fact that when you have a medical diagnosis like a food allergy, a life-threatening food allergy, there is going to be just sort of a, a higher level of anxiety as a baseline anyhow parents are going to be more hypervigilant than parents of kids without food allergies. People who have a food allergy are going to be more hypervigilant and aware than people without, whether it's aware of their own physical sensations, aware of the environment around them, what others are eating, others are doing, that hypervigilance. So if we can learn to live with that in a way where in the moment we can use that helpfully, adaptively to assess safety, to make decisions, and then move forward towards whatever it is we want to do, then that's useful. If we start to have that, those very things keep us from doing things, that's where it's no longer helpful. And I would say it would be helpful to get somebody, you know, a therapist who understands allergies, or at the very least can help you at least assess the anxiety and make some changes. Mm-hmm. So this makes sense to me that, you know, we know something is maybe like a little excessive if it's interfering in their life in some way. What happens if you get clients, whether it's the allergy sufferer or the family or both, where their level of restriction is something that they feel justified in? So they may not be saying, you know, yes, Tamara, you're right. I'm not doing the things I want to do. It's interfering in my life. I want help to change that. They're saying, well, yes, of course, I, you know, there are certain things I'm not doing that I want to do, but I can't do these things because it's too dangerous. And in your estimation, maybe they're overestimating the risk. Does that make sense? Yeah. So my my flags would go up. I don't want to say red flags, but my flags would go up and say, okay, what I'm hearing is very rigid boundaries, rigid rules. And I would want to know more about why. How did they create those rigid rules, those boundaries for themselves? And that leads to what's their understanding of risk, right? So there's there's actual risk and there's perceived risk. And when we're managing an allergy, those lines become very blurred. And it's it you know, it stems from what were they told when they received the diagnosis, right? So there's if there was an education piece on the front end of here's how you assess risk here's where, you know, you don't need to be so overly concerned, some conversation and education about what risk assessment should look like, 
that would be helpful. If somebody didn't get that information or education from either their allergist or support group after receiving the diagnosis, they may tend to overestimate the risk and underestimate their capabilities to navigate that situation. And so I would want to work with them to understand they may be comfortable in restricting a lot of things, but A, is that workable? Is that helping them to do all of the things that they want to in life? Or have they over-accommodated this fear and this rigid you know, risk assessment protocol that they've created themselves to stay safe and not feel anxious? And now you know, they've, they've been giving up a whole bunch of things they'd like to be doing in their lives just because they feel they have to to stay safe. So I would want to revisit the actual versus perceived risk, and I would get their allergist involved. And that's a big piece, too, when we're working with, with patients who are managing food allergies is this multidisciplinary collaborative care piece. And, um, you know, it's important for me or any provider who's working with those managing allergic diseases is to understand the exact pieces of their puzzle, right? Because an allergic disease, a food allergy, asthma can look different depending on each individual. There's that art and science piece. So it's important for us to connect, you know, get get the uh, release of information to connect with their allergists and understand. So I would even be saying to the allergist, hey, I'm noticing that this patient of yours really feels that, you know, they need to perceive so many things as a really high risk versus a lower or moderate risk. That may be a piece of of conversation or education you might be able to provide to help that patient balance that a little better and get a little bit more accurate level of what the risk actually is so that they can change how they respond to it. Mm -hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So it really sounds like a team approach, you know, where there's the allergy doc, the mental health professional, the family, you know, having everybody really hooked in and kind of on the same page about risk versus balancing living your life in a non-overly restrictive way is incredibly important here. It is. And, you know, not every allergist has referrals to psychologists or therapists who can help support families like that. I think that's something as allergy-informed mental health care providers that we're pushing for is to say there's a spot for us to help create this multidisciplinary care so that, you know, when your patient or family comes in and says, we really are feeling a lot of anxiety, or maybe the provider, the allergist notices, hey, they're not doing this, they're not doing that, their teen is, you know, not having autonomy, enough independence, there is an imbalance with the developmental stages because of the fear, they could then refer out to a therapist or make the suggestion that that might be helpful. So it's it's something that is becoming more of a conversation piece. And I think the research that's being done in the allergy space is clearly indicating that there's a lot of psychosocial impacts for those managing food allergies, which warrants this multidisciplinary approach and warrants more information and research to be done on the psychosocial piece yeah. in order to help these well, families. Well, this is the perfect segue into my next question, which is like, <laughs> let's talk about what some of these psychosocial impacts are. You know, we've already talked about the potential for allergy to limit what people are doing. Obviously, there's this heightened level of anxiety or fear or hypervigilance that you talked about. What other ways are 
I, whether it's the allergy sufferer or their, you know, their siblings, their parents, their, what are some of the other impacts that you've seen? So, um, I mean, think about this. Let's, let's for a second, imagine that you could no longer eat anything with dairy because every time you had something with dairy, whether it be cheese and butter has dairy in it, typically, we don't always remember that, right? So all of these things that have dairy or derivatives of dairy in it, and you can no longer eat that. And so you think about your day on a day-to-day basis. Okay, so now it impacts you at least three times a day when you're eating, right? And so additionally, you go grocery shopping, right? And you have to read labels. So now grocery shopping takes longer. And let's put on top of that some more uncertainty here, because why not, right? And labeling laws, at least in the United States, all that have to be clearly labeled are the top nine ingredients. And I say nine, it used to be top eight. Sesame just got added. So it's top nine now. So if it's an actual ingredient in a food, it has to be labeled. If it's may contains, which means maybe it was made in a facility with that allergen or it was made on the same line, there there is no mandated regulation for that. So if somebody is allergic to trace amounts of their allergen and you put together the fact that there's no required labeling for what's called precautionary labeling for the may contains or made in a facility, that's up to the manufacturer to decide if, how, and when they put it on. Wow. I want to clarify really quickly. You said the top eight ingredients, but I, are you talking about the, the most common allergens, the eggs, dairy, wheat, shellfish, tree nuts? Yes. So the top nine would be shellfish, milk, peanut, tree nuts, egg, fin fish, wheat, soy, and now the ninth is sesame in, this, in the United States. Got it. I didn't know about the, the sesame. So, so yeah. it's not that labels have to have the first nine ingredients. It's that if any of those nine things are in the product, they have to label it, but yes. not if it's just in trace amounts. Okay. Got yes. it. I'm glad you asked that. Cause yeah, absolutely. Yeah. If it's an ingredient in the product and it's one of those nine allergens, top nine allergens, it has to be, it has to be labeled in some clear way. Okay. Mm-hmm. If it's the trace amounts or it's made in a plant with this, like they can choose to do that or not do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Got yes. it that's going to ramp up anxiety and impact lives on a regular basis, right? Then you think about navigating the, the social things, the, the activities, the sports, the family gatherings, the parties, right? Those are all parts of lives where we get enjoyment typically and connection. And now we add in, we have to navigate the food piece of this. How do others understand your allergy? What about the food they put out? Is it labeled? If it's not, how do we find out if it's safe, right? Did I bring my auto injector just in case? So then there's teens, there's dating, right? I mean, so food is an integral part of our lives. And so if you have a food allergy, you've got to learn how to navigate travel, everything that includes food, which is everything we do, everything, everything, try to find a place, you know, Oh, I'm going to go have a business meeting. We're going to go, you know, to Starbucks, grab a cup of coffee. Great. Okay. Mm -hmm. What if you're allergic to dairy? Remember, do they clean out the containers? Now we have to ask a set of questions and there is that risk assessment. Am I comfortable with how they approach their cleaning procedures when they make their drinks in order for me to order a drink there and feel okay and be able to sit there with my friend at this meeting and not be panicking, right? I mean, it, it impacts your entire life. You know, I imagine that this has to result in a fair amount of kind of like rule governed behavior. So mm-hmm. maybe there's a specific type of bar that I eat that I know is safe. And so maybe that's the only bar I'm going to eat because why take the chance that I might try something else that has trace amounts of my allergen and I might react poorly to that. And, you know, you and I both do a therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy, a huge piece of which is really kind of letting go of rule governed behavior in general. Yeah. But I wonder if this, this is almost an exception or, or maybe you get choosy about like when a rule is workable and actually allowing you to better live your life in line with your values versus when a rule 
becomes overly rigid and and unworkable and, and is interfering. Is that something that you talk about with clients? Absolutely. And because I primarily work in my practice with parents or even more specifically moms, we have a lot of these conversations. Um, So what I typically end up talking about is the fact that when we're managing a life-threatening food allergy, we are very, very guided by the value of safety, right? That is like top number one. I mean, that you get diagnosed, here's what you avoid, here's your auto injector to keep you safe. Safety is number one. However, Because of the anxiety and the fear that come along with all this uncertainty that we feel when managing this food allergy, as you said, we tend to develop more rigid behaviors or rules and safety is at the, at the forefront of this. Mm -hmm. So you'll see, for example, a lot of times in support groups online or on social media, there'll be a lot of conversation where people compare how they manage their food allergy, right? On a day-to-day basis. There's a lot of conversation about, especially primarily at the um, onset of the diagnosis, because again, that's when we feel the most uncertain and out of control and we're making these big changes and it's overwhelming. But a lot of conversation about, do you call the manufacturer to find out about how they label, right? So for example, some parents will call on a somewhat regular basis to food brands that they eat and say, how do you determine your labeling as far as the precautionary, the may contains or made in the facility. Whereas other people either were told by their allergists that they didn't need to, or they feel comfortable not doing that. So when you said, you know, each family is going to develop or each person's going to develop their own guiding rules, some may be more rigid than others about this, either because their anxiety level is higher and they haven't learned how to manage and perceive that risk in a way that helps them move forward still. Um, Others, because of either their coping strategies already in life, um, their perceptions, maybe they themselves have already managed a food allergy themselves. So now their child has one, they have a different perspective. Maybe they don't have quite as rigid of guidelines to navigate this. But it goes back to safety being the usually the top value that allergy families and individuals are connected to. And I will typically talk to my, my clients about the fact that we can live an or life or include the power of and. And that looks like if we are using safety as our guiding value, we tend to get into this rigid, we have to be safe or we can't do this. So in order, in order to be safe, we can't go here. We can't do this. We're safe or we have risk and we go to this place we want to go that's just not safe. Let's shift that mindset, right, and look at the power of and. How how can we be safe and still go to that place we want to go? How can we be safe and still go to the family party? Because that's also a value, being connected to our family and our friends and having enjoyment in life. That is a value. So how can we do those two things together? And that's where we do a lot of work uh, about the rigid, the rigid rules that we've put in place in order to balance and find some way of getting through with this uncertainty and anxiety. Can we loosen those? Can we change those? Can we shift those so that we can do safety and other values instead of safety or other values? I love that. I love that so much. And what what a simple but powerful shift a person can make when they change or, or but to and. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I'm wondering about is, you know, you're talking about like the necessity of kind of making space for some of this anxiety and uncertainty, et cetera. Does there have to be some tolerance of risk? I mean, it, saying this and thing made me think, well, like nothing is, you can't guarantee any situation will be risk-free, allergy or otherwise, right? I mean, you and I sitting here right now, a ceiling tile could fall on the head, right? Like no no situation is guaranteed to be 100% safe. So is part of your work teaching families to tolerate some level of risk so that they can go to this party or event, you know, and feel safe, but like safety is relative. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And the answer, simple answer is yes, because as you pointed out, there's always going to be a level of risk, no matter what we do just by living, there's risk. And so honestly, we do talk about tolerance, but it's not just tolerance of risk. It's tolerance of the discomfort 
of being faced with risk, right? So it's when I'm anxious because I'm faced with risk, how do I manage that? And how do I keep that from, from keeping me from moving towards something that feels risky? That goes back to that assessment of risk. But if we think about it in terms of steps, so we would assess what, what is holding somebody back. Their anxiety is, is heightened because of a certain aspect or, or piece of the food allergy management. Okay, that's impacting their lives. How? That's keeping them from going to the family party. Okay, great. What is, let's assess the risk. Let, what's the perceived risk of going to the family party? What's the actual risk of going to the family party? Great. Okay. What can we do to make that safe for you to go and be with your family? Okay. And now let's look at how do we tolerate the fact that there is some risk? What do we need to do? And that can be working on mindset. That can be working on self-talk. That can be working on asking questions ahead of time to get an understanding of the actual risk. Is grandma going to make a pie with tree nuts with pecans in it that I'm allergic to? So, so then we start to look at how do we tolerate the fact that there is going to be risk? And you're right. Every time you eat a food, there is an inherent risk, but we have to eat and we have to live. And so it is about tolerating the distress, both the actual distress and the feelings of distress. Yeah. And, and and what I find myself thinking is like, you're always going to feel the most safe and the least anxious at home because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is an environment you can 100% control. Yeah. And that anytime you're venturing out, you know, whether it's sending your kids to school or going to the birthday party or the family event, there are unknown variables. And I imagine the more people stay at home and don't venture out, the harder that becomes. And that as they venture out, it sounds like what you're suggesting is, you know, it's okay to gather some data to assess the risk, to make an informed decision, but probably it means a lot of like choosing to step out of your comfort zone. There is a lot of stepping out of the comfort zone. Let's use the pandemic as an example, though. Like, let's look at the pandemic. There's a couple of things in the allergy community where the pandemic is really kind of similar to living with an allergy and and how it's impacted those managing allergies. So simply put, being home so much more than being out, I think anxiety levels have have decreased for those managing allergies because we're not we haven't been out you know with risk and as you said we feel more in control in our homes because we can choose what we have in our home we can be an allergen free home so we have more control in our own homes so that's that's been one impact and also just the fact that we have to be so as a, as a population as everybody has to be more careful and have to make these choices about, you know, risk. Do I want to send my child to sports practice where they're not wearing masks? Is that a level of risk I'm comfortable with versus, you know, so that gives you an idea of what it's like to live on a daily basis with a food allergy. We're constantly sizing things up. That's a great comparison. And I think about how exhausting the last 18 months has been (laughs) because of the basic decision fatigue around trying to understand risk. And that I'm so glad you just said that because it just gave me this whole new level of compassion Mm -hmm. for folks with allergies. And and that makes me think of another question, which is, you know, unfortunately, you see a lot of, I don't know if discrimination is the right word, but you, you see a lot of lack of compassion. So for example, if your kids go to a school that's a nut free school, there are families that are pissed off about that. You know, like, mm-hmm. why should my kid not be able to eat peanut butter? Cause your kid has an allergy. That has got to be such a challenge for families who are dealing with this. And is there anything that you recommend in that specific type of situation when you feel like you've got folks who like just aren't very understanding about allergies? Yeah. So you're 100% right. There is not all the time, but there are times where there's a lack of compassion, empathy, and understanding from people because the decisions or the rules that are made to keep one family safe makes another family uncomfortable or unhappy. 
And so whether that's related to a decision because of a medical concern of a food allergy or diabetes, this is part of life, right? We make, we have rules and decisions that help some, but are going to keep others, you know, unhappy. I really encourage families or individuals to grow a thick skin. I hate to say it, but you know, there's opportunities where we can get into conversations with people. And again, because this is such an emotion driven diagnosis, there's the fear, there's the, we need to keep ourselves and our child safe. We're more likely to want to get into arguments with people about this to really explain just, you know, please understand just how important it is to keep my child safe. You know, if your child was in this situation, couldn't you understand wanting to keep them safe? But I do encourage people to, to, to assess when you're face to face with somebody who is lacking the compassion and empathy for this situation to really assess a couple of different things. If you're going to converse with that person, what's your purpose? Are you going to try to sway them and help them gain some better understanding so they can develop compassion and empathy for the situation? Are you trying to inform them? Are you just trying to stand your ground and say, no, this is how it has to be? But don't feel bad about what it is you need to do to keep your child safe. Somebody's always going to be unhappy. So it's not, it's not up to us to try to accommodate and make everybody else happy, you know, and, and smooth things over. We can do that in a very kind way. Again, I'm a values-based person. I'm a values-based practitioner. So I'm always leading with, how would you like to have that conversation? Would you like to approach that person who has a lack of empathy with anger? Or would you like to approach them with compassion because you're a compassionate person and you're going to model that for them? Right. So it's really about you know the fact that there is this acceptance piece, again, that there is going to be a portion of people out there who are just not going to get it who are just going to be cruel about it. There was a conversation going on on Twitter this weekend. My friend Leanne Mandelbaum is, she goes by No Nut Traveler on social media. And she is big into looking at legislative rules as far as airline travel goes mm -hmm. and allergen consumption in on airplanes and rules regarding all of that. And so there was this conversation going on and I just kind of happened to pick up a piece of it this weekend where, you know, somebody was really upset about the fact that there was an announcement made on an airplane that there was no, no nuts were allowed to be eaten, no peanuts or tree nuts were allowed to be eaten because of an allergic, a severely allergic passenger. And somebody got very upset about that. And, um, you know, so again, then you start to have these debates. But I mean, there's multiple sides to every coin. So this is no different than pretty much everything in life. There's going to be people who get it and have compassion. There's going to be people, people who don't. And it's not our job to do anything other than keep ourselves and our child safe and lead with our values. If we're a compassionate person, let's not lead with anger. Let's lead with compassion. And if that person doesn't give it back to us, that's okay. Right. It's sort of making me think of like holding the outcome lightly. Like you use yeah. your values to determine whether you're going to say something, what you're going to say, how you're going to say it that it's coming from a place where it feels important to you mm -hmm. to express that irrespective of how it turns out, because there's no way to know whether you're going to get more compassion or whether you're, you know, not going to have that understanding or. Well, and it goes back to, we can't control everything and everybody. And we can't control somebody else's response to, to things. And again, if you think about it from like a school perspective, that was your example, right? If a school in, you know, initiates that it's a peanut free school or it's a peanut-free classroom, those are rules that the school made because they mm -hmm. felt they were warranted and safe. So that isn't something that should be on the parent. The parent shouldn't have the... Right. the but, but again, we're dealing with emotions and people are going to be reactive. And so it really is just developing this thick skin and realizing, you know, hey, I'm going to have to accept the fact that some of the things I have to say and do are going to ruffle feathers, but they keep me safe. Well, I think there, there's another unfortunate COVID comparison here when you see mm -hmm. people's different attitudes about masking. Yep. And, you know, can't we all agree to do this simple thing to keep each other safe? But then you have another group of people that says, you know, no, this is my freedom and that's what matters. And, you know, this, this allergy situation kind of reminds me of that, that, you know, you'll always have people who are more focused on their own comfort and freedom 
than on the good of the community. And while it would be lovely if we could change people's minds on that, you know, chances are we won't. And therefore, you know, having that thick skin or I had a classmate who I adored who used to always say, own it. And I use that (laughs) all the time. This like simple two word phrase is like, you just got to own it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I have this allergy. It is nothing I need to feel bad or guilty about. I sure as heck don't have to apologize to you for the fact that I have this allergy and need to avoid the allergen that might kill me. So I'm just going to own it. And, you know, of course, easier said than done. But I think that's what kind of part of having a thick skin is that, like, own that this is my reality. Well, and you just brought in another piece, humor. I don't know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. Humor is a value in my family so much so that when I was getting a tattoo on my wrist, I almost put the word laughter on there. That's how much of a value it is for me. I, by the way, went with the word believe because that's also something important to me. But, but anyhow, it, what you said reminded me of a guest that I had on my, my podcast, Exploring Food Allergy Families, recently. And it's a young adult who has navigated food allergies her entire life. And we were talking about tips for teens and for young adults, because, you know, it's hard enough trying to date as a teen without any medical conditions, right? And so she was talking about, you know, her experiences, having to you know, have that first kiss and, and starting to, you know, date somebody. And when do you tell them about the allergy? And how do you tell them? And, you know, there's that, that, that feeling of well, what's their response going to be? Are they going to be compassionate? Or are they going to dump me because of it? And so she said, I used humor. I'd put it right out there and say, you know, like, hey, are you going to kiss me? Because I, you know, did you just eat, you know, dairy? Did you just eat? So <laughs> we can bring humor in to sort of diffuse some of that tension at times and maybe just sort of reset things. And it's not making fun of ourselves with the allergy. It's just sort of lightening the situation because of, like you said, there's such a lack of compassion right now. There's that compassion divide and compassion fatigue. And then, you know, that leads to um, another point that a lot of those managing food allergies feel is exhaustion uh, and burnout of constantly having to educate people and explain. And, you know, every time we drive through Wendy's, we double check, hey, have has anything changed with your frosties? Do you use anything that make, you know, so there's that piece of the constant conversation. And and if people could just understand and be compassionate of that piece, that families and individuals managing food allergies have to do this on a daily basis to stay safe, that would go a long way. Yeah. And can we maybe not add to what is an already difficult situation by not being supportive of this medically necessary change. That's like that subtraction piece that, that one of your recent guests, rather than adding, you subtract something, right? Yeah. The, the law of yeah. subtraction. So I agree. I loved I'm that episode. That. I did too. I did too. Well, I, I feel like I could talk to you about this forever. I have like a million more questions I would love to ask, but we're coming to the end of our time. So I want to direct people to your podcast. So folks who are listening, who you know have have allergies or have a family member with allergies, it's such an incredible resource. You know, you can get much more of Tamara and her expertise. And you were just telling me your most recent guest from this week was the super nanny. How cool is that? (laughs) Yep. Joe Frost, also known as super nanny, manages food allergies herself. And she is an allergy advocate. And so she came on to my show. I actually just recorded it this last week. But part one's already out there now. And uh, part two will be out probably by the time this airs. So it was really just a great conversation about how she had learned to manage her allergies in a way that didn't keep her from traveling and doing everything she's been able to accomplish in her life. So definitely check that one out. But, you know, we really, my, my podcast, Exploring Food Allergy Families, is not a medical podcast. It's a podcast that looks at how do we navigate the relationships, the social, the emotional pieces of life with food allergies and how that impacts different aspects of family units. Yeah. And that's, what's brilliant about it. You know, people who suffer from allergies have their medical doctors who give them, you know, the basic facts they need around allergy, but then, you know, everything on their own to try to navigate everything else. So I just think it's a great resource. The other thing I wanted our listeners to know about, especially our listeners who are mental health providers, if they want to get more educated, like let's say somebody wants to be a therapist who works with people with allergies or families or already is working with them and maybe is feeling like they don't know enough, is there like a, a one-stop shop for these kinds of 
resources or if they want to refer to an allergy specialty mental health professional, Mm -hmm. where can they go? So at this point, there isn't any real training for uh, behavioral health care providers to you know, learn more about working with those managing food allergies or allergic conditions. It is in the works. And I think if you give it another couple of years, there will actually be, you know, certification trainings or training programs to help people gain that skill set. It's just not there yet. However, a couple of places providers can go to to learn a little bit more, because again, I think most of us in our practices as therapists and psychologists will come across somebody or a family who has an allergic disease that would be asthma, food allergies, FPIs, EOE, something like that. A couple of reputable places I would recommend just to learn the more medical piece of it is Quad AI. So this is just such a long name. We call it Quad AI in the field. It's Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. Sorry, the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. And their website is aaai.org. It's a lot of A's. Yeah, you got to get the right number of A's. <laughs> so that's why we call it quad AI. Four A's and an I. Okay, I got it. And we'll make sure we put all these links in our show notes <laughs> so people can easily find them too. The other major medical organization that is about allergy and immunology is the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. And that's, we call it the college. So see, we don't want to say all the names either. It's just too many and it's right. twisters. So their website is acaai.org. And then FAIR, Food Allergy Research and Education. So it's FAIR, F-A-R-E.org is another good website. There's a bunch of organizations that focus on food allergies um, or allergic conditions that if you just want to sort of understand the more the, the more science, the medical, the, you know, the stats behind it, you can look those up. And then my resource website that I've created is called the Food Allergy Counselor website. So it's foodallergycounselor.com. And that website is helpful for both the community and the providers. So for the providers, I've started curating a list of links, research, information that's helpful for us as providers working with these these clients. There's a link to to an article about how do you do exposure therapy with these clients because the key piece with that would be you're not going to do exposure therapy to the allergen. We would never do that. That's outside of our scope. That would be something the allergist would be doing in the office, but it's Mm -hmm. exposure therapy up the ladder of things for fear. So what is making them afraid? And then we do some exposure therapy to those things. So there's links and resources there on the Food Allergy Counselor website. There's the podcast episodes, which can be helpful as well. There's blog posts. And the other key piece of that website is the Food Allergy Counselor directory. And so you mentioned maybe there's providers out there listening who already have a great understanding of food allergies. Nine times out of 10, it's because we're personally affected by them ourselves and our family. But maybe they have a great understanding of it. They understand the psychosocial needs of families and individuals managing them. And they would like to start providing those kinds of targeted services in their practices or be listed as somebody who understands them and can help support people, have them reach out to me through the Food Allergy Counselor website because we have a listing. I think I have to look back, but I think we've got providers in at least almost 40 states in the U.S. We have at least one provider in England, a couple in Canada, one in Australia, and these are all allergy-informed behavioral health providers. So if somebody wants to be added to that list, they can reach out for an application. There's also a networking group that I've created for us. And we have food allergy focused peer consultation groups that that are run once a month. So so my goal is really to be a liaison between the community, the providers, the doctors, and just sort of help guide people into the direction for the resources they need. That's so great. So that's a place that therapists can be listed, but also where families can find therapists who can suit this need. That's fantastic. And allergists will refer to that list as well, especially if they don't have somebody that they know of to refer people to. And again, with telehealth through this pandemic, you know, we don't have to be super local to our our patients. We can just, you know, as long as we're in the same state. And then on top of that, SIPACT, a couple of our, about five of our providers, our psychologist providers on that list can 
work with people in, I think, almost 25 states now. Yeah. So yeah, it's helpful. So much more flexibility. Well, we will list all of those resources on in our show notes. And you will have a book coming out sometime in the next year or two. These things take some time. So if people want to be informed for when that book comes out, what do you have like a mailing list that they could sign up for or something like that? Absolutely. So I have a newsletter. If you go to the Food Allergy Counselor website at foodallergycounselor.com. And in that newsletter, I have some sections that are, you know, new latest research related to psychosocial and food allergies, information for providers. I have tips that I share. I will, of course, share when my book comes out, other projects I'm working on. So that would be the best place for them to sign up and stay on top of everything. And then I'm also all over social media on Twitter and on Instagram. I am therapist Tamara, T-A-M-A-R-A. And then there are also the food allergy counselor accounts on Twitter and Instagram and a food allergy counselor page on Facebook. Perfect. Well, I hope people come find you because your resources are incredible. And I think that there's a dearth of evidence-based information and and strategies out there. So I hope people find you. And thank you so much for being here. I, I think this was a really, really useful interview. And I can't wait to read the book when it comes out. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. And hopefully this has helped people understand allergies more and find some resources they didn't know about. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.